Why don't you all stand with me as we read from uh, God's word? We'll be in Titus chapter 2, and we're going to read the whole thing. So follow follow along. Paul says this, uh, but you were to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love, and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the younger men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Slaves or to submit to their masters in everything. We'll explain what that means. And to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good work. Proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is good. We ask that you would not just instruct us and give us the right way to go, but you would fuel us and give us the motivation to go and to move and to get there. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all can take your seats. Um. As people or Christians, we're all on this spiritual journey towards life change. We want our lives to be better. As a church or as a community of folks, uh, we're on this spiritual journey together. Think of it as a road trip that we're all going to take. And when you're going to take any road trip, there's two important things that you need. The directions, right, where you'll go and the gas in your car to get there, the instructions and the fuel. It doesn't matter what order you get them in, you just have to have both. If you have the instructions and no fuel, uh, you have knowledge that will take you nowhere. If you have fuel but no instructions, you have the ability to move, but at the end of the day, you're just a motivated wanderer. Um, That's probably the greatest parable that I can think of of what Christianity or churches tend to look like. You've got a group of folks that know a whole lot, but their knowledge really gets them nowhere. Or you have folks that are motivated and fueled.
able to do good things, but they don't know where to put all that motivation and fuel. So at the end of the day, they just drive around in circles. And what takes place is that with both groups, lives aren't transformed. And the goal, why we're trying to do all of this stuff here, is that we want transformed lives. And you may say, well, why are transformed lives so important? They're important for us because our transformed lives are important to everybody we're connected to. Here's what I mean by that. What's unique for us as Christians is that we want to do good in the world in a unique way. There's a lot of folks that want to do a lot of good in the world, and there are a lot of people that do a lot of good in the world. But as Christians, what we think or what we believe is that the best good that we can do in the world is point and introduce people to Jesus. Now, here's why it's important for our lives to be transformed. Because if your lives are not transformed, you present a pretty poor advertisement for Jesus. As Christians, all of us are walking advertisement. And what you and I know um, is that bad advertisements uh, don't change people's opinion of the advertising agency that produced them, it changes people's opinion of the product that's being advertised. And so here's why being a bad advertisement of Christianity, not having your life change, can be a bad thing. It's not just that it won't do good, but it can do harm. Have you ever sat down with somebody and they may see an ad for like a uh, McDonald's or a Big Mac for the first time and they look and they say, this is amazing, right? That, man, it's so big, the lettuce and the tomatoes are so pristine and it's all nice and neat. I want to go there and you've been there. And so what you say is, I've been there. It doesn't look like that. So it's not just you saying, I won't go. You're telling people, stay away. If we present a bad advertisement for Jesus Christ, what takes place is it's not just that the surrounding world won't go, but they'll look at anybody else that wants to go and they'll say, I've been there. It's not really like that. Stay away. So what we have to think through is, How are our lives changed? We want to produce an advertisement that will help people to meet Jesus, but in order for that to take place, life change really has to happen. And what I love about God's word is that God does not leave us to guess how it takes place or where it takes place. He tells us that right here in the word. That's the point of Titus 2. And I think that the main point that he's going to try to get at is this. Life change happens around the dinner table because we need models, not just messages. Life change happens in the context of family. We don't just need to hear, we need to see. For those of y'all that haven't been with us here in the course of the past few weeks, we've called this series, a community under construction, because we feel that it's better for you to think of church as a construction zone than a movie theater. You don't come to be entertained, to sit back and watch. You come to get your hands dirty and to get to work. The first chapter 
of this book was all about just an orientation. It just wants to get us all set up, right? The first part is this. You were saved. God saved you, not just to set you up on a shelf, but to serve. Then the rest of the first chapter is trying to make sure that a church has the right leaders in place and they get the wrong ones out of the door. Now, chapter two is all about how all of us get to work. The metaphor of a road trip may fall short because sometimes when we think of a road trip, we think of the person that's driving and the people that are in the passenger seat. And I want you to know if you're a Christian and you are a part of a church, you are not just a passenger. You are a participant, somebody that's meant to get to work. And I think that's why Paul, what he does, what he does here, he addresses everybody. What we, we do right here, right now, on this day in the week, it's great. But there's a reason why we only do this two hours a week. We want you in rows here to sit and to learn and to hear God's word. But most of your life does not take place in rows like this. Most of your life takes place in the context of relationships. And that's why I say, oh, life change happens around the dinner table. Because we need models, not just messages. Titus 2, starting in verse 1, he starts off and says this, but you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. He starts off. And what he wants us to know is that messages are good, right? It's not saying that we don't need this time, but it is saying that the truth of God's word is meant to be embodied. That our belief is meant to produce a certain type of behavior. Belief and behavior are as inseparable as thunder and lightning. One produces the other. One is evidence that the other is really there. So as he tells him, I want you to proclaim these things that are consistent with sound teaching. What he's not saying is that I just want you to make sure that your church has a particular form of theology over and against the rest of their form. So I'm going to make sure that y'all are reformed or I want to make sure that you're or Minion, or I want to make sure that y'all are premillennial, or I want to make sure that you're Calvinist. That's not his point here. His point in, in sound is I want you to teach things that lend themselves to health. And it's not to be separated. And so what he does is he talks to the whole family, but he addresses everybody individually, and I want you to pay attention here, right? Don't just read and look for your role. The reason why this isn't here for all of us to read is that it's just as important for you to know what everybody else here should do so that you can both encourage and hold them accountable. And as we read here, one thing that you're going to, that you may be floored by um, is that it's not rocket science. It's not complex. There's not a whole lot in this first part, at least, that you and I have to decipher. That the Bible is not this riddle that God's trying to make 
you and I work hard to get the meaning. Sometimes things are so plain because he just wants us to get it and to reflect on these things. And so that's what takes place here. So he starts off with the older men and he says this. Older men are to be self-controlled, right here, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love, and endurance. So if you're an older man here, and what I love about all of these terms um, is that they're all relative, older, younger. Uh, So what that means um, is that you determine your identity or what's being said here, not just on your own, but in relationship to the rest of the church. So if you're a part of this church and you're 30 plus, um, you're older. Older men, and so what he says is this, y'all. Y'all are to be self-controlled in this word here, worthy of respect. We live in a world um, where a lot of times people get respect just because of the fact that they have gray and they have life experience. And I know that there's a bunch of y'all in this room that have that granddad that he's old enough well, he's Christian, but he'll still cuss folks out and people don't really care. They just say, ah, he's, he's old. He can do what he wants to. And what Titus says here is, nah, that I don't want the old men to just rest on what they did back in the day in the wars that they fought and expect that people would give them the respect because of what they've done. I want them to actively live in such a way where they're worthy of respect right now. Sound in faith, love, and endurance. What he's saying is I want older men to be those that have a stable character. Then he moves on and says older women. Right, and so here, like these are the things that are funny. He's giving an instruction for this church, and what he says is this: All right, in the same way, older women ought to be reverent in behavior, and then he goes on and says this: Not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. Basically, what he's saying is, um, the older women at your church shouldn't be like the Real Housewives. He said, make sure that they don't gossip. Y'all have that auntie that you go to her house and you find out things about people that you wish that you didn't know, but now you know. And he said, no, no, no. The church should be filled of women who don't give themselves to that kind of looseness in speech and behavior. But the thing about Christianity is it's more than just your bad deeds being erased. It is about your bad deeds being replaced. And so he says, all right, if they aren't involved in that, then what should they do? They should teach what is good so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their own husbands. Here's two implications that come out there. One. The teaching ministry of the church is bigger than Sundays, which means it's bigger than the pastors. A church that is only taught by their pastors is a church that is poorly taught. This t- 
teaching of what is good is something that all of us are responsible for. Life change happens not just on Sunday, but at the dinner table. Not just that it's larger than the pastors, but too, um, some of the best packaging for teaching to come in is in encouragement. You see what he says right there? They're to teach what is good so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. What I love here is that Paul doesn't instruct Titus to teach this to the young women that are a part of his church. Not saying that he can't. Not saying that he shouldn't. Because in starting to say this, Titus would actually teach this to those that are a part of his church. Paul doesn't have anything uh, against this kind of intergender instruction. What he is saying, though, is that, man, at certain times, Titus, it's going to be more advantageous for an older woman to say these things than for you to say these things. Because the church needs more than just messages. The church needs models. That older women can share things in this unique way. Right? Uh, me and Sylvia were, um, uh, uh, we talked on Friday, and as we talked about this text, one thing that she said was that she's like, I've learned um, that I don't get a do-over in life. The way that she gets a do-over is finding younger women to pour into the experience and tell them things that she wished she would not have done so that they don't do the things that she wished that she would not have done. And she gets a do-over, but it comes vicariously as she pours and invests her life in somebody else. What I love about this text, too, and a special challenge to the older women that are a part of this church that may be single and read a text like this and count themselves out and said, what do I have to offer to teach somebody else about how to love their, their spouse and their kids if I don't have one? And I would say, um, what we don't see here is the marital status of the older women doing the instruction because I don't think that's the most important thing. Sometimes we can get most encouraged or we can get the most encouragement by people who don't have what we have that show us how much we take those things for granted. There's a unique role in the body for older single women to remind those younger that may be married that your husband, that your kid, I know it feels like a burden, but it is a gift from God. So what I would say, one, don't count yourselves out. And for those of you that are young and married, don't discount somebody else because they don't have the experience that you think that, that you may. Uh, Blair, yo, I'm not sure if he's here. Blair is a part of the church. Blair's a vegetarian. Me and Blair have gotten into it in the course of the past few weeks because 
Blair swears that he could cook meat. And, and I say, Blair, I don't trust meat cooked by people that don't eat meat. <laughs> and on Friday night, we were at a party, and Blair made some of the best chicken tacos I ever had in my life. And it shows that you don't have to eat meat to satisfy somebody that does. You don't have to have a husband or kids to help those with a husband and kids learn how to walk in a way where their behavior matches their belief. He goes down, younger women. And he tells the old ones, to encourage them to love their husbands and their children. And I want you to hear this, y'all. The Bible makes a whole lot about us loving our enemies. But how many of y'all know sometimes it's so hard to love the people that we're supposed to love? And what we don't need is rebuke, correction, scolding. What we do need sometimes is just time at the dinner table with an older woman placing her arm around their younger woman, sharing the tears with her and saying, I remember when my kids were out of control. I remember when I longed for kids and I didn't have them. I remember when I longed for being married and I didn't have it. And let me tell you, God is more faithful than all those things. Life changes happens at the dinner table, y'all. We need more than just messages. We need models. He tells them to be workers at home, and I want to talk about this really quick. This is not saying that if you are married and you're a mom and you're a Christian, you have to be a stay-at-home mom. Being a stay-at-home mom is not a bad thing, but I don't think it's a command from the Scriptures um, as well, we have to take into account this was written in an agricultural context, not an industrial or a technological one. So what that means is that even though women, women may have stayed at home, they still, some of them worked on the farm, which means they contributed to the bottom line of their economic status in their home. And we know that in the world that we live in and the society that we live in, uh, people facing the economic disparities that they have, sometimes a wife working and not working is the difference between their family being above the poverty line or below the poverty line. So this is not saying that it is somehow sinful for a wife and a mother to work outside of the home. I think his point is he wants these young women to feel this sense of love for their home and care and not neglect the home. Do you know why? Because life change happens at the dinner table in the context of home and family. And I do think God has uniquely created women to have the ability to care for the home in a unique way, not to the exclusion of what they can do outside, but to the benefit of what they do inside. He goes on and talks about submission. 
Again, submission in the Bible is not about inferiority. It's equality, right? Men and women have the same value before God, the unique role that he calls men to take in the household and in the church is that of servant leadership. So it's service that men do, not subjugation. And what he's saying is, yo, I want y'all to do this so that you can show forth, so that the outside world doesn't slander. The outside world looks at that term submission and they think of subjugation. But if the women in the church and in our homes, if we do that well, we create something better that we show that in the church we aren't here trying to subject classes. We're here serving one another with the authority that we have. And I say all of that to say in marriage and in life or just where you are, regardless of if you are married or not. Hear this. Marriage is great. Your friendships with people in your stage of life is great. But if we are ever going to change, if our lives are going to be transformed, we need people that are outside of our stage of life. Hang with your girlfriends. Hang with your guys. Talk about what life is like now. But don't do it to the exclusion of accepting the gifts that God has provided in older saints. He goes on to the younger men and tells them to be self-controlled in everything. That in the world that we live in, people talk about youth and they say, man, youth is the time to make mistakes. It's the time to make memories that you'll look back with in fondness. And I just want you to hear, y'all. Um, living in sin is not making memories that you will look back with in fondness. Living in sin is preparation to live a life of regrets with things that you wish that you could forget, but you can't. And so what he tells this, this group is that, yo, you'll be self-controlled in everything. But notice that one word that he uses at the front. Look there at verse 6. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Here's why that's important. Um, Nobody is shamed into self-control. You do not get somebody to control themselves by saying you should be ashamed of yourself. You can shame people into condemnation. You can shame people into hiding their sin, but you can't shame them into controlling their sin. Self-control has to be encouraged. And again, it's older men coming alongside somebody that's trapped in sin or trapped in regret, putting their arm around and saying, there's a better way. I know you think it's providing you the fulfillment that you want, but if you are honest, you know that it's just leaving you with regret, and there is a better way to live than with constant regret. Goes on to pastors, leaders, and he tells them, make sure that you have integrity as you 
speak. We've talked about that in the past few weeks. And then he gets here to slaves. This is a tricky one, so let me do a little bit of back work first, and then we'll jump into to, to, to this. Um, I was helped with this part based on a message that um, Tripp preached on Philemon at the end of last year. Um, it didn't make it to the podcast, um, so uh, there's a lot of points here that I'm just going to borrow um, from him. Um, what I want you to see here is that he starts off and he says that slaves are, sub- are to submit to their masters in everything. The first thing that we have to know or that we have to get here is that slavery here is not synonymous with what you and I think of when we think of slavery, chattel slavery in the U.S. Just because the same word is used, it doesn't mean that it's the same thing. A few years ago, we took a group of folks to Scotland Um, And they had this thing called fish and chips. So we had somebody get fish and chips. And what we find out is that we both use the same word chips, but their chips were really French fries. They, They weren't chips at all, right? So you get here and you think of this word slave, but but when you think of what the United States did, you think of the transatlantic slave trade, and you'll find out that is not the same thing that was here at all. Chattel slavery was a deviation that equated to men stealing, sanctioned rape, and dehumanization of a race of folks that had generational implications. That was not slavery in these times. There's at least four things that weren't the same. One, back here, slavery was not race-based. It wasn't based on trying to subjugate a particular group or ethnic or ethnicity. Two, slavery wasn't kidnapping. There were a bunch of ways that you, 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 you could find yourself as a slave if you owed a debt or things like that. Three, slaves did all kinds of work. They had all kinds of things that you and I would think of today as respectable professions. And four, um, slaves could earn money and buy their freedom. There was an actual way out. That was not the same as what was done here. So the first thing as we read this is we have to know slavery here is not synonymous to what we think of, but two, uh, that doesn't mean that this is a justification for slavery. All right? That's what this is not. This is just Paul instructing people to live as best as they can in the unfortunate situation that they found themselves in. As you look at all the rest of the instructions that Paul gives, all the times that he talks about slavery through the text, there's a lot of things that Paul does to undercut the system of slavery, but as Paul is writing, he's not writing this proclamation to try to undo this system, he's writing to teach people how they are to live. So 1 Timothy 1.10 and the list of all the things that would earn people condemnation or separation from God in that list in 1.10, Paul puts in slave trading. As Paul talks to Philemon, uh, what he tells him is there's a slave that you had that 
ran away, and now he's getting ready to come back. And Paul's saying, but when he comes back, I don't want you to treat him as a slave. I want you to treat him as a brother. Paul commands slave masters not to view their people as property because people are not property. So in all the stuff that Paul does, Paul is trying to undercut this system by the way that Christians are to behave. So don't let anybody tell you that the Bible was written to justify slavery. It wasn't. With all of that being said, what this is Paul doing, he's talking to the whole family. And as he talks to the whole family of God, even people that are slaves, he doesn't leave them out because he doesn't want anybody in the church to think that there are two classes of Christian. He wants the people that society would outcast, he wants the church to be reminded that those folks should be at the dinner table as well. And there's a kind of diversity. We talk so much about being a diverse expression of the gospel. And so often we talk about that primarily in terms of race. And we neglect the facts that one of the pieces of diversity that's hard to find in our world is a socioeconomic one. Now you can go and watch the Hawks play and find a diverse group of people racially. You can go to a concert and find white and black folks there who love the the same thing. It's hard to find a place where the rich, middle class, and the poor all come in and everybody sees themselves as equal. That's Paul's point here. That's my prayer for this church. But as Paul tells, this group of people that have this grave injustice done to them, look at the instructions that he gives them. Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing. So don't just do the bare minimum, but be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness. What's the point that he's trying to bring out? I think the point that he's trying to bring out is this, that uh, injustice done to you is never a justification for sin. And what I love about what's done here is, look at the so that at the end. So that you may adorn the teaching of God our Savior. What he does here is he ties this, this, this group of folks that were beaten, this group of folks that were broken, this group of folks that were treated as less than human, he tells them to be faithful, and in their faithfulness and obedience, it will display the gospel in a unique way. It'll be an amazing advertisement. E. Franklin Frazier, in his book, The Negro Church in uh, America, puts it like this. He says this, The slaves who had been torn away from their homeland and kinsmen and friends whose cultural heritage was lost were isolated and broken men, so to speak. In the emotionalism of the 
camp meetings are the times where they come and talk about the gospel, and revivals, some social solidarity or this unity, even in temporary, was achieved, and they were drawn into union with their fellow man. Later, common religious beliefs and practices and traditions tended to provide a new basis of social cohesion in an alien environment. The point that he's trying to make is these slaves, although they were broken down, their brokenness turned out to be the very backdrop of which the gospel was introduced to, to, to them. Mukti Barton says it like this. The innocent slaves who were regularly whipped and hung on the trees to die found in Jesus solidarity with them. And what they're saying is these slaves, these people that had were treated as less than human, human as they found themselves hung on trees, what they saw They didn't just hear the gospel as this disconnected message. But what they saw was a model who went through the same things that they did. Innocent. Broken. Bruised. And they saw something in Jesus that made the gospel look real. Now I bring all of this up. The instruction to, to the families to really show um, that Paul tells this church that your life changes to take place around the dinner table, that as the church, the older men, the younger men, the older women, the younger women, even the, the societal outcasts, as all of us come to, together and live how God has called us to do, it does something unique and that it presents an advertisement to the world of what Christ is like. So look at verse 5 and verse 8 and 10. As the older men, uh, younger uh, as the older men, the older women and the younger women do what God has called them to do. Verse 5 says this, they do that so God's word will not be slandered. We live in a world that is already looking to take shots at Christianity and what God's saying is the way that you live will, will give them ammunition or take it away from them. Then in verse 8, as he talks about the role of younger men, what he, he goes on and says this, look, so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. So we live in such a way to take the ammunition from people that would want to take shots at the church. So that when they start to take shots at the church, verse 8 says that all they'll do is shoot blanks. Then you get to verse 10. And you see this group of people that seems to have the least societal dignity. That the way that they live, the way that they respond to the injustice that they face has a way of painting a beautiful picture of God. And you see this pro progression from a group that wants to take shots, finds out that all they do is shoot blanks. And then in verse 10, they put down their guns and, and they look at the glory of the God that they tried to kill but couldn't. We see the great power in the ordinary things. A few things that I just want to bring out. One, 
You look at this text and all this stuff is straightforward. That as you think of your involvement to pour into somebody else and to help them along, this text has nothing to do with your intensity. It doesn't even have much to do with your um, intelligence and all the stuff that you know. So many times when we think of trying to pour into somebody else, especially from a Christian context, we think of all the mounds of theological information that we have to have. But this right here is all about intentionality, just saying, I want to make sure people's belief lines up with their behavior. So it's you saying, Old, 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 old woman, I've been there before and I've seen that you're failing to love your husband and your kids the way that you should. Let me grab you by your ear, put my arm around you and let you see that there's a better way. Younger men who constantly find themselves out of control. Saying, I know that God lives in me, but I just can't stop. This with my girlfriend. I just can't stop spending money this way. I just can't stop with porn. I just can't stop with dot, dot, dot. That the older men would come and say, wait a minute. I hear you say that you serve a God that died on the cross and got up and gave you his same spirit. I want you to know that the way that you live is inconsistent with what you say. Let me encourage you and let you know that there's a better way. It's something that all of us can do. It's something that all of us can do, but very few of us actually do. And I think that very few of us actually do because we have the instruction. It's the motivation that we we lack. And that's why I said that this text is split in half. One through ten is all about the instruction. But the instructions without fuel is like a car and having the directions without gas. That to try to put this into practice without the power of the gospel is like taking a road trip to Texas, finding out your car does not have gas, stepping out of your car and trying to push the car all the way to Texas. Try to do it in your own strength and you're going to be frustrated because you're constantly going to find yourself knowing what you should do and where you should go, but not having the fuel to get there. And here's what I love about how this text is split up. It starts with, with the instructions, but it ends off with the motivation. It ends off with celebration, where it is that we should look. The church should focus on one another But at the end of the day, in order to get the motivation to do what God has called us to do, we have to be people that constantly look at Jesus. Look at verse 11, and it says this. Look, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, all types, old, young, men, women, slave-free, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, and here's that word again, the appearing of the great glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. In verse 11 and 13, you're going to see that same word twice, appearance. And it talks about 
when Christ had appeared in the past, what grace did then. It talks about what he will do in the future and his appearance there. And it's meant to tell you and I the answer, the motivation, the way that we fuel our tank is to constantly look at Jesus. And the problem is some of us are too nearsighted or, or we're not farsighted enough. When we look to the past, we're not just to look to our past. But grace is supposed to take us to a past 2,000 years ago where the grace of God had appeared. And Jesus saved us. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, but none of us lived. Jesus lived a life not resting on his past accomplishments, but lived a life that was absolutely worthy of respect as a model to the old men. Jesus knew the inner working of all of his opponents and people that were out to get him. And what he didn't do was spend his time vindicating himself and slandering people. But instead he taught what was good and encouraged. He gave a model to older women. You talk about submission. Jesus was the only child in human history to know better than his parents what he should do, and still submit to them. The very people that he gave life to, he obeyed their orders. You talk about submission, and Jesus gives an example to the younger women. You talk about self-control, and the God who turned water to wine didn't indulge himself the whole time here on earth. The God who fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish did not gorged himself and was a glutton here on this earth. The God who had all power in his hands had enough self-control when he was on the cross to not call down a legion of angels to the people that did him wrong. You talk about responding faithfully when injustice was done to you. And this God was a model to these slaves who found themselves outgunned, forced into subjection, forced into a noose, forced into lynchings. And this great model, Jesus, willingly walked to his death. For the grace of God has appeared. And grace does two things. It doesn't just save us and change our destiny It instructs us right now and changes the way that you and I walk. And so what we're to do is we're to constantly look at Jesus. When we reflect on our past and we're frustrated at the mistakes that we made and we're tempted to live in condemnation, we ought to look back further and be reminded that this Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to literally take us out of hell's teeth. As we look to the future and we think to ourselves, 
I'm confident that I'm saved now, but I don't know how I will sustain myself. We're not to think about our own strength. We're to be reminded of a Jesus who's already in the future and has made promises. Our destiny has changed, and it has nothing to do with our strength. There's a lot of people with a lot of philosophies about what life should be like, what the point of life is, what is the reward for life, and everybody with a philosophy takes a deep dive. They dive off that board into the deep end of death. And that's the last that we see of them. They don't come up for air to tell us if their philosophy was right or wrong. Jesus is the only one who took that deep dive into death in a way that you and I would run from for us. And he got up and said, hey, y'all, come in this way. The water's fine. In his resurrection, he proved the truth of the things that he claimed. So we look at how it turned out for him. You and I are here because his work on the cross worked. Our loved ones that have put their faith in him are sitting rejoicing in heaven right now because what he did worked. Our destiny is filled with hope and not fear because what he did worked. Your Monday is filled with hope and not fear because what he did actually worked. So you look at him. Don't turn your eyes from him. You stay in this book however you can, through preaching, through podcasts, through apps on your phone, through memorizing scripture, through conversations, whatever you have to do, you get it. Right now, you are swimming in a pool of potential encouragement. And the only charge that I have for you is this. Don't wait around for it. Seek it out. You need it. It's surrounding you in an abundance. You are and you will become the people you surround yourself with. Our world is already throwing advertisements to discourage us away from the truth of Christ. So what you need is a community of folks that are constantly going to encourage you to follow Jesus and to trust him more. To show us that following Jesus is not taking an L. It's a good thing. And you want to fill your life with that. As opposed to Spending time with people that discourage you from following God. Maybe not outright, but just in the subtle ways that they live. In the things they exult in. That may cause you not to completely doubt God, but to start to question some of the things that God said is true. Satan himself started in the garden, not with a denial, but a discussion. 
that started with a question. We constantly need to be refueled. And the place that that takes place, y'all, is here, praise God, but at dinner tables through the week, in families, in a community, as we're so shaped by what God has done that we can't help but to talk about it and constantly encourage. Don't wait for encouragement to come your way. Seek it out and know that you need to be refueled every day, every hour. Find people that will help to refuel you. And when we do find ourselves with people that may discourage us, don't go it alone. Bring other people that can provide that reminder and that refuel in those times. Don't fail to seek it out, but don't fail to give it out either. Don't discount someone because they're not perfect. Don't discount yourself because you are not perfect. Perfection is not the end goal. Direction. What are you doing with your sin when it comes up? That's the model that people need to see because as long as we are here in this world, sin may not be the dominating factor in our fight because the spirit is stronger than sin, but sin is still there and it will rear its head and people need to learn how to respond towards that sin. And you can do it and your present imperfection is one of the tools that God has left you with to create a model not just of perfection, but of repentance. We need more than just messages and talks. We need models. And regardless of what stage you are in, you are uniquely set up to leverage something unique about God and who he is. Let's live that way victoriously as a family. Let's pray. Father, we ask um, that you wouldn't let us settle into being those that are just known for being able to articulate the beliefs that we have. Nor would we be a group that behaves um, in such a way that would contradict the beliefs that we have, Father. Help us uh, to behave our beliefs, Lord. I pray that you would help us to know the importance of the family that you've blessed us with. Give us the grace to make time for models and help us to make time to be models to those that need your encouragement. It's in Jesus' name we pray.